1: Let me uh, reread from John chapter 3 that that Rob just read for us. In John chapter 3, we read this. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, "'Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God.' For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is one of the more famous episodes in Jesus' life. This man, Nicodemus, comes to him at night. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, which means he was a rabbi himself, and he comes to Jesus, who's becoming infamous at this point in the community. He's healing people, he's proclaiming all sorts of things, and he has no education. He's just a common carpenter with a lot of wisdom, it seems like, and power. Nicodemus comes at night, because Nicodemus does not want to be seen, presumably. In that ancient culture, even though they were in Jerusalem at the time, they didn't have streetlights, they didn't have cars driving by that could shine lights on you. It was dark. If you wanted it to be dark and not be seen, you did something at night. He meets with Jesus and says, Rabbi, so he gives him an honorary title, even though he hadn't earned it by his degrees. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher from God. The signs that you're doing show us that something else is going on here. And the question that we need to ask then at first is, is Nicodemus earnestly a seeker? Is he actually coming to Jesus saying, hey, you've done amazing things and I personally am interested? Maybe. Maybe but it's also possible that he's doing backroom dealings. You see, Jesus the day before had just upset the priestly class and uh, he, was, he was part of the rabbi-pharisee class and they were kind of like the Democrats and Republicans. And he was like, hey, look, we saw you upset the, the Republicans over there, so we want to make a deal with you. It's unclear why he's coming, but Jesus puts it to a stop right away if there any, is any sort of backroom dealing going on here. Jesus says to Nicodemus, this chief rabbi, this ruler of Jerusalem, one of the top guys, he says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again. It's what theologians call the new birth that every person is called into. Questions we're gonna ask this morning are about that new birth, that new spiritual birth who is it for, what is it, and why do we need it? Who is the new birth for? What is the new birth, and why do we need it? We begin with, who is it for? Who is the new birth for? So, The the phrase born again, which Jesus uses here, is a famous terminology in Christianity, but was more popular in the 70s and 80s. So those of you who are a little bit older know that there used to be a way of referring to yourself as a Christian as a born-again Christian. And in the 70s and 80s, it, it was a popular way of distinguishing yourself from somebody who just went to church. You've been born again. Nowadays, and even back then as it started falling out of popularity, part of the reason it fell out of popularity is because of the connotations that went with it. It's like, what sort of people need to be born again? And on one level, there's this idea that people who need some sort of conversion experience to to make sense of their spiritual world, it's the emotional and highly dramatic people. You know such people, some of you are such people, the emotional and highly dramatic people, you need a good conversion experience, or you're just looking for dramatic spiritual experiences. Some people look down on them, like they're too emotional, they're always looking for spiritual experiences, they're they're weak. But the other kind of people who need born again experiences are the people who need those, those magical conversion experiences, the ones who have had major things happen in their life. So it's the addict or the criminal sinners, people whose lives are completely messed up, and they tell these dramatic conversion experiences from prison or coming out of addiction or coming out of gangs. God got a hold of them. They've been born again. So, born again is for those people, the weak or the bad. Born again is for certain kinds of people, and if they have those experiences, great. But the problem with that sort of dismissal of born-again and born-again language is that Jesus is talking not to a weak person or a sinner, he's talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is described in our passage as a Pharisee and a ruler. As a Pharisee, he would have been one of the most highly educated men in his culture. Incredibly well-educated, he would have been known as a thinker and a teacher of the law. And not only that, because of his role in Jerusalem, and with this ruling body, he would have been one of the chief Pharisees in the entire nation. He would have been one of the most learned men you could possibly come across. He was also, as a Pharisee, somebody who was morally excellent. So he had studied the Bible, he knew it left and right, he had studied God's law and was essentially like a top lawyer, a top professor, a top lawyer, and was morally excellent. The Pharisees in that day and age followed the rules. They were honest and faithful and generous. And they really were. We have this term pharisaical as somebody who is hypocritical, but honestly, by the standards that we measure, somebody's like, he's a good guy or not, they followed all the rules that we would set up. They were morally perfect, and he would have been the perfect of the perfect, the best of the best, because he was recognized by his peers as somebody who was that high up. So on one level, we know this. Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus, is not the weak emotional type nor is he the sinful, criminal, addicted sort of type. He was a religious leader, and he was a cultural leader. He was one of the patriarchal heads of the nation. That term ruler there, we find out later on, he is part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the governing body of Israel in that day and age. It was comprised of Pharisees, rabbis, and Sadducees, priests. So rabbis and priests were the leaders of the country, but they weren't just randomly chosen. These would have been, again, the best of the best, chosen by their peers, especially the rabbis, would have been those who had gained the credibility amongst their peers as somebody that they respected. So if everybody wants to put forth somebody to, you know, the the party wants to put forth somebody to run for president, this is the sort of person they put forth. They think, okay, he is somebody that we want representing our party. He was respected by his peers and he was revered by the nation. In a culture that honored status positions, he was about as high as you could possibly get. He had all the education, wealth, power, influence, and status you could possibly have in his culture. It's actually hard to put into equivalence what that sort of person would be today. But it's someone who is incredibly intelligent and talented while also being successful and influential. They've had all the right colleges and multiple colleges, done exceedingly well in each of those places. They've advanced in their career and continue to advance, and they have a great family. Their marriage is great, their kids are grown up and they're all doing great, they have multiple grandkids who are all doing great and they have lots of money. And on top of that, they're really nice. (laughs) So this is the sort of person you want your kid to grow up to be. You won't say it, but you're like, gosh, I, I," you know, intelligent and talented and a great career, get into all the right colleges, good marriage and money so he can take care of me later? Of course that's what you want, right? And in a sense, it's what we aspire to ourselves. We want to be respected. We want to achieve. We want to succeed. Nicodemus had all of that, however we would describe it. One New Testament scholar, Bruce Milne, summed it up this way. There could be few in the entire city of Jerusalem, in fact, in the entire nation, whose credentials were more impressive as far as acceptance with God was concerned. And yet, Jesus tells Nicodemus that he, Nicodemus, needs to be born again. Who is the new birth for? Who needs to be born again? Well, obviously, it's everyone. A first century Jew thought the Messiah, their view was that the Messiah was coming to save Israel but bring judgment on Gentiles, the world. The world and Gentiles were the same thing. So when the Messiah came, he was going to save Israel and bring judgment on the sinners, the Gentiles, the world. But Jesus here is flipping that on its head for Nicodemus and for us. When he says in verse 16, for God so loved the world, which includes the Gentile sinners, that he sent his only son, gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. God's saving love is extending to the entire world and everyone, verse three, must be born again, even you, Nicodemus. It gets more challenging later on When at the, uh, near the end of the section that we read, verse 18, 19, and 20, Jesus talks about believing and not being condemned versus kind of doing darkness, walking in the darkness and being condemned. Let me read this. Jesus says, Whoever believes in him, the Son, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. He's talking about himself. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So think about some of that language that's used there on the negative side. Loving the darkness, doing wickedness or evil, standing condemned, What's crazy is that in this section, again, Jesus is not addressing Gentiles. He's not even addressing the people in general, where tax collectors and Roman centurions and prostitutes might be listening in. He's talking to Nicodemus. And he's equating Nicodemus with the worst of sinners, with Gentiles, with people in darkness. With people who are doing wickedness. If you looked at Nicodemus' life, that's not how you would describe it, but Jesus does. Because the definition of darkness and wickedness and evil in the economy of Jesus is very different. The turning point is do you believe in the Son? Who needs to be born again? The weak, the drunkard, the dropout, the Gentiles, Nicodemus, and you, and me. Who is the birth for? It's for everyone. And what is it? It's, to, to make it pretty simple, but not that simple, it, what is the new birth? It is from God through Jesus by faith. It is from God, and we see this in verses five through eight, when Jesus uses this metaphor that I'm not going to break, uh, break apart deeply. Jesus answered Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So to be born again, to to participate in this new birth, is not about getting advice or a plan to be a better person. It's not, hey, I need a new plan. I need to figure this thing out. I've got to have a better set of uh, directions for my life. Nor is it about trying to be more religious or more moral. Nicodemus was more religious and more moral than you'll ever be but rather what Jesus is talking about is a completely new life, a completely new you, which means not spiritual renewal or spiritual reformation because you are spiritually dead. You can't reform dead. You cannot renew dead. It needs new life. It needs the divine breath, the divine initiative. It needs God to act We believe in Jesus, not because we're smarter than other people. You don't believe because you figured it out. We believe because God gives us his spirit, full stop. His spirit brings life into us and enables us to believe. To bring new spiritual life where your heart by nature is dead. How many of you remember your birthday? Your actual birth day, The day you were born. Do you remember it? No, but you were there, right? What part did you play in your birth? Some part, I guess. But you were not in control, were you? You were not in charge. It was not your decision. And yet you were a part of it and participated. Similarly, Jesus is using the metaphor of birth and even the wind and the Holy Spirit to suggest that that God gives life to us in a way that we do participate in but is mysterious and in which we are not in charge. God is acting and we're involved, but it's not necessarily something you just say, I'm going to figure this out. And that's ultimately because the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is by grace. It is by grace that God does something and enables something in us. He brings life where there was death. In our confession of faith this morning from Ephesians 2, Paul is summarizing the Christian teaching. He says, God, who is rich in his mercy because of his great love for us, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. The first part of Ephesians 2, it talks about how we were all sinful and evil and in darkness, regardless of whether you are the criminal or the Nicodemus. We are dead in our transgressions. It is by grace we have been saved. God raises us up to new life. God brings life where there was only death by nature. So if this is the case, what role does a spotless record play or a great resume in getting you new life? The degrees, the bank account, the perfect family, the I would never do that sort of thing. It is God who saves because God loves through God's grace. What is the new birth? It is from God, and it is through Jesus. It is through Jesus. Jesus himself says it in verses 13 to 15. He tells Nicodemus, no one has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. It's a pretty bold claim. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. He's talking about the cross, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you you know the way to the new birth, the way to eternal life? It's through me. You need to have faith in me. He basically says in these very verses, whoever believes that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior, because that's the metaphor that he's using about Moses being lifted up, whoever believes that Jesus is the Son and the Savior will have eternal life faith in Jesus is the heart conviction. It's the heart conviction that Jesus is the Savior and the Lord. And not just in some kind of, you know, like out there sort of sense, like a mental assent sort of thing. It is a deep heart conviction that Jesus is not just the Savior and the Lord, but your Savior and your Lord. And it comes about through Jesus. The salvation that is being born comes about through Jesus. You know, Jesus uses birth language in here, and he equates himself with a mother in labor later on. In John 16, verse 21, it's the night before his crucifixion, and he's with his disciples. And he knows in the next day he's going to die on the cross. And the description that he uses with his disciples is that of a woman in labor. But he's talking about himself. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a baby has been born into the world. She sorrows because her hour has come. You know, giving birth in the ancient world was incredibly dangerous. It still is today in much of the world, and it's not without its incredible challenges here in the U.S. and in the modern world. But in the ancient world, you had suffering without epidurals. There was blood and there was often death. Many babies were born at the expense of the mother, her suffering, her bleeding, her death. Jesus is saying, "The, the thing I am birthing is being brought about through my suffering. My blood, my death. The woman is sorrowing look, because she knows the hour of her delivery is coming. This is not going to be easy. It could be the end of her life. That word hour, we talked about it last week, is a key term in the Gospel of John. It's the way Jesus refers to his death. My hour is not yet come, he said last week in John 2. The hour is his death. And he's equating it with the delivery of a baby. I have come to bring a life, actually to bring the kingdom of God, to give birth to the kingdom of God and to plant it in your heart and bring new life to you through my suffering, my bleeding, and my death. In my death, you will have life. And we are to put our trust in that Jesus, that his death was for us to give us life. To be born again is to have faith, and it is, I guess, in some ways, it's it's a realization. I, don't, I mean, like if I was I was trying to think about like how would I describe what born again faith is, and it's it's a realization and aha, oh now I get it. Something changes. And in some ways, like the wind, it's like maybe you might actually see in a different way later on. If you've grown up in the church but not had that aha transformation, that born-again moment, you might have like studied all the scriptures, your life, gone to small groups, whatever, but it was always just kind of like there, and eventually it becomes alive to you. You get excited about it. You want more of it. Something changes because life has been brought into you. It can also be described as, as like... Um, you know, in, in the candy machines, I think they still have those around here, Coke machines, candy machines. But when I was in high school, ninth, tenth graders had tricks with certain candy machines in this school. There was one where you put the money in, and if you picked a particular candy, right as the, um, the candy was being pushed out, if you kind of gave it a hit on the side, you would get like two candies. The worst, of course, was if you put the money in, and it, the, the thing started turning, and the candy bar started pulling forward, and then just got stuck And then you start banging on it just to get it to drop, right? You're like, come on, come on. But the, the candy dropping is essentially what needs to happen in your heart and in your mind and in your life with Jesus. You can spend your whole life standing on the edge saying, oh, yeah, I'm in. I kind of do this sort of thing. But until the candy drops, until the penny drops, right, there is some version of it that's like, you know, maybe the equivalent would be falling in love, and I know not everybody has done that, but we can imagine it, right? Falling in love, is, is falling in love something you do or something that's done to you? Hmm? Is it a process, you fall in love over time? Or is it a moment, I fell in love? Well, yes, I guess. <laughs> Saving faith. New birth or as theologians call regeneration, is actually from God's perspective a moment in time. There's a time when you pass from death to life. When your faith is no longer in yourself or your moral record or in something else, but it's in Jesus. And you may know that time or you may not. You may look back and say, I don't know, somewhere between age like 18 and 25, I started going to this fellowship group in college and then church, and I don't know, somewhere in there I decided I I guess I believed. And some of you might be like, oh yeah, I went forward to this Billy Graham crusade in 1974, and you know, it was that moment. But whether you know it or not, there's a point in time in which the salvation and lordship of your life transfers to Jesus. When the candy drops. It is from God, through Jesus, by faith. Who is it for? Everyone. What is it from God, through Jesus, by faith, and why do we need it? Why do we need it? Well, if you're a religious, moral person, most of you are, you know, depending on where you stand in your your faith journey, religious, moral. But remember this, and we talked about it earlier. Jesus does not tell Nicodemus, follow me, follow me, and you will be a better person. Jesus doesn't say, hey, Nicodemus, you're pretty wise, you've learned a lot of things, but listen to me, and I will give you a deeper understanding. Listen to me and learn from me, you'll become a wiser person. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again, because you are spiritually dead. And he's talking to the most religious and world person in the city. This tells us something about what sin is. Sin is not just doing bad things. It's not just immorality or being hateful or cruel. It is those things, but at its root, sin, if Nicodemus is included as a sinner in need of saving, sin is trusting something besides God for meaning, worth, or hope. It's trusting in your moral record, your religious goodness, being a generous guy. It's your perfect family. It's your academic credentials. It's the love of somebody else. It's looking to anything besides Christ to give you meaning, worth, hope. It is something else that you're looking to to save you. And Jesus is saying, even in Nicodemus, you are as good as it gets but you're trusting in your goodness to get it. And so you too are dead. Spiritual people, people who are spiritual in our culture, maybe even in this room, can talk about having faith in God. Like, oh yeah, I've got a real faith in God, it's a real big part of my life. But they're constantly looking to their own performance to justify themselves before God and others. But it is not enough to be moral, to go to church, even to know the Bible. You, can, you could know the Bible. You could, you could actually study this and know it better than I do, and I've spent decades studying it. You can go to church more than me. I'm here once a week. You could find five others and go ten times a week if you want to. Being moral, going to church, knowing the Bible is not enough. You must be born again, Jesus said. And so, if you're in here today and you're religious or moral, That's great but Jesus is telling you he wants your whole life. That you would look to him and him alone as Savior and you would trust him and him alone as Lord. Why do we need it? Because our moral record is not enough. And honestly, if you're a long-time Christian, if you are a, what you would call a born-again Christian back in the 70s and 80s, if this matters to you, if this Jesus thing is there, why do we need to go back to the very simplicity of being born again? Because it is the place of courage and humility that the gospel enables. In John chapter 19, we get another episode of Nicodemus. Now, we don't know fully what happened in Nicodemus' life after this night. We know that a little bit later on, he's arguing sort of on behalf of Jesus in that that governing body, the Sanhedrin. And then at Jesus' death, Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, asks for Jesus' body to bury it. He's going to use his own tomb. And somebody comes to join him, to help bury him. It's Nicodemus. We read in, in chapter 19 that Nicodemus comes and brings 75 pounds of myrrh an aloe to anoint Jesus' body and helps Joseph of Arimathea to, a, to bury Jesus. So think about what took place here. This is not happening at night in a one-on-one meeting. It took a lot of courage. This is out in the open. Everyone's gonna know that he was with Joseph burying Jesus. He's being associated with Jesus in a way that he could not ever hide again. That it took incredible courage, but also took a lot of humility. You know that um, the burying of a body was something reserved for slaves and servants, especially for somebody of the class of Joseph of Arimathea or of Jesus, I mean, of uh, Nicodemus. They were of the higher caste, you would have servants prepare bodies. You didn't touch them yourself. And if you were not rich enough to have servants, it was something that was reserved for women to do, because men needed to remain ritually clean. and if you touched a dead body, you were ritually unclean. It took a lot of humility for him to take the dead body and prepare it like a slave. It was at great cost to himself. Financially, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. That was probably a precious thing in his family. It was reserved maybe for his own funeral or at minimum for one of his family members. And he's pouring it out on Jesus' body. It was at great cost to him religiously. He became ceremonially unclean, couldn't participate in the life of the worship of the temple, and it was a social cost to him, his reputation, his role. But the gospel enables that because the gospel is a by grace thing. We are loved by grace, which means you can have confidence. You can have confidence and courage because all that God has given you cannot be taken away. God's love for you is by grace. It's not you measuring up. And because you are saved by grace, it's, it humbles you. Whether you are the criminal or the religious leader, we both need to be saved by grace. We're all equally sinful before God, and so there's no place for pride or superiority. There's nothing that becomes beneath you. You can be humble and generous because of the gospel. The new birth in the gospel that we go back to again and again enables profound courage and humility. And lastly, why do we need this new birth? Because I think if you do not have it, you will not last. It is not enough to practice Christianity and even assent mentally to Christian teaching. You know, the modern world, if you haven't figured it out, especially in the West, is more secular. Christian doctrine, Christian belief, Christian practice is less and less acceptable and normative, and it's even being pushed further out than that. And when Christianity is not in power, It will cost you to follow Jesus. And if you've not been born again, then your convictions don't have you. Maybe Christianity has been convenient for you. Maybe it's worked for you, like, oh, it's a good program. Or maybe just most of your friends are Christians and you just don't know where else to go. But if that's the case, Jesus doesn't have you. You've not been born again and you will not last when it becomes costly to be associated with them. Jesus calls us to total surrender of the lordship of our life to him. He says to each of us, you must be born again. Let's pray. God, this morning I pray for a renewed life for those of us who have been born again but have fallen away from our first love. And I pray for your spirit to stir in the hearts of those who are dead in here, even those who are moral and good and amazing people. God, bring us the realization, the aha that we need you and you alone. By your power, through your grace, bring new life to us who put our trust in you. Amen.